0: G'day, welcome to the Wood Fired Oven Podcast, where I take a deep dive into the techniques, recipes, and history of wood fired oven cooking. My name is Mark, an obsessed and somewhat curious fan of outdoor cooking, especially with my wood fired oven. Follow my podcast in your favourite app and listen in as I go searching for the best recipes, tips, and advice to both supercharge our cooking skills and motivate you to light up your favourite outdoor cooking gear this weekend. Well, g'day and welcome to this week's episode. I am very excited because today, finally, I'm hosting the first ever Woodfire Oven podcast interview. It's a long-distance interview. My guest and I live in different parts of Australia. Uh, This episode has been uh, in the planning for a while, and I'm very grateful and very pleased to welcome to the show Adrian, an amazing wood-fired oven home cook. Actually... To be fair, he's a pizza-making guru, which is super exciting for me because I'm certainly not. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Adrian.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for having me, and congratulations on the podcast.
0: Oh, thanks, mate. It's um, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Man, it's uh, absolutely fabulous uh, to have you on the show chatting with me about wood-fired oven cooking and your obvious passion uh, for food and cooking with fire, and I've been looking forward to this uh, chat uh, all week. Uh before we begin, I just want to encourage anybody listening to the podcast to follow Adrian on Instagram at That's AGES Fire Kitchen. That's A G E S Fire Kitchen. AGES Fire Kitchen. Also, you can check him out on Facebook as well. I'll leave links in the show notes as well. And you will immediately see why I've invited Adrian to the show. Uh, Adrian, your pizzas are without doubt some of the nicest, most perfect looking pizzas I've seen in my life. And that is no exaggeration. Uh, Your passion for food uh, is uh, evident. Thank you. (laughs) No, you're welcome. I'm really looking forward to to learning about your process and your recipe for making your gorgeous pizzas. I know the listeners on the podcast uh, here uh, are about to listen to a masterclass, really, for home pizza making cooks. Certainly upping uh, my game for sure. I've got a lot to learn about making pizzas. uh, I'm sure the listeners are going to get a huge amount of fabulous knowledge from this episode. Before we get into a deep dive on pizza, though, mm-hmm. uh, tell me a little bit about what got you into wood-fired oven cooking in the first place.
1: Yeah, thanks. Um, well, it's it was fire. I've always been drawn to it. Um, even like growing up when I was a kid, whenever there's a barbecue or you know, Dad lit the fireplace. Nine times out of ten, I'm throwing things into the fire and somehow burning myself. So I would always find myself going back for more. Every time I would you know, end up burning myself. So it was yeah. just some type of fascination I had with it.
0: Yeah. Why do you think – why fire? Why, I mean, you obviously do a lot of cooking uh, uh, in your oven. Uh, why fire? Why not just do it inside on an electric stove?
1: Well, I, I find that fire brings people together. You know, you light a fire in summer – like at a barbecue, you're going to stand around it with a beer. You light a fire in winter, you're going to huddle around it to keep warm. But I find that there's something primitive to the nature of fire. Like like you said, you know, cooking with um, conventional ovens, whether it be you know, stoves, barbecues, whatever, it's very convenient. So if you cook with fire, or in this case, a wood oven, it's an occasion and it's a, it's an event. So I think people are drawn to it because it's something that they can look forward to.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's... I find it very connecting too, you know, it's uh, historically, I guess, uh, we've been cooking with fire since year one, and like you say, I, I think we are drawn to fire, and it's like a magnet for me, I just, I really love it. With regard to your oven, I see that uh, you use a zesty, zesty, is that how you pronounce it?
1: Zesty? Yeah. Zesty? Yeah, yeah z- zesty wood-fired ovens, yeah. they're actually a family business in um, Perth, Western Australia. Right. So they've been in business for around 20 years, and they make both residential and commercial wood-fired ovens, and they do sell um, locally as well as um, ship internationally.
0: Have I seen them on MasterChef? Were they on MasterChef at one point?
1: Uh, I, th- I think they were in uh, in the earlier years. Yeah, right. Okay. I need to check that, but yeah, I'm pretty sure yeah, they Yeah, I'm were. pretty
0: sure I've seen them on TV. Uh, so what
1: particular oven have you got? So I've got the Z1100. Right. And you chose that. Why? Um, well, there's a, a couple of reasons. The first thing that drew me towards the Zesty Oven was the stunning stainless steel arch.
0: Can I say that is spectacular? Actually, I mean, I, I've just been flicking through your Instagram feed again, and that arch is It's worth buying it just for the arch. It's, it's, yeah. it's gorgeous.
1: Yeah, it really um, really sets off the rest of the oh, uh, yeah. rest of the oven. Like, I mean, I like the look of the rusty ovens. Yep. But I live in a smaller home and I feel that a rustic oven might actually look a little bit out of place with mm. my uh, alfresco area. Yeah. I find that the stainless steel alloy dome, um, it's like a nice sleek looking, mm. you know, centerpiece for my area. So it's actually quite nice.
0: Easy to keep clean, Adrian?
1: Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the, the dust comes in from yeah. the side. Yeah. But, um, Story you know, of my life wipe it down with a wet rag to give it a clean, and usually twice, once or twice a year I'll um, wipe down the stainless steel with a really like a food-grade oil. Oh, right, okay. Which I've somehow stumbled across at IKEA of all places. Right. Oh, I love IKEA. So because it's uh, <laughs> thin and food-grade, you know, it's not like a – uh, an olive oil or something like that, which is going to go rancid over yeah, time. Yeah, sure. So, so it's
0: a very fine, very yeah. fine oil, is it? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right.
1: Yeah. So that uh, keeps it clean and looking brand new. So, Adrian is—is is it a portable or, or a fixed oven? You've—you've you've ended up with. Yeah, it's actually uh, portable, and that was a um, an important factor for me. Like deciding to buy a wood oven is a considerable investment, especially if you're getting like a one of the larger styles. Um, so. I spoke to the team at Zesty, and they said that they can design me a custom stand on industrial casters. So right. if I ever decide mm. to move house, the oven's coming with me. Yeah, so that, that's a huge plus, eh? I mean, it, is
0: your oven portable in the sense that you can move it around your house if you wanted to, or is it um, you got the chimney up through your roof? Or how, how do, yeah, you got it?
1: Um, I've got it installed in place. So like you said, the chimney is going through the roof. But as it as it comes, you could ha- have it anywhere, so, you know, wheel it around anywhere.
0: Yeah. And and so the big heavy casters. So I I think um well it looks pretty heavy. Um we'll talk about the specs a bit later, but um yeah, that's one disadvantage I've got with my oven. Probably the only one, but um it, it's here forever. Yeah, it's not coming with me, but
1: yeah. I can build another one. Would you go through the process of building another one?
0: Uh, oh, that's a good question. Uh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was talking to my wife the other day about um uh, the projects that I f- seem to land myself in. And and I actually really enjoy the the building process. I'm quite a creative and probably fair to say I enjoy building these things just as much as, as using them I spend a lot of time when I build it thinking about how I'm going to use it uh, so um, yeah, I was uh, I was saying to the manufacturer the other day that I actually missed the building process so yes uh, <laughs> on the next house I've already told my wife
1: yeah you need to budget that again and yeah yeah. anyway we'll work on that an important thing for me like you said you know how are you going to use the oven was like I need to be able to use it all year round right. I don't want to not light the oven because it's cold or raining or anything yeah, like that Yeah. so and that's why I decided to build it under the main roof of the house. Yeah, and I closed off the area with retractable blinds, so I've essentially built myself another room. Mm, that's a great idea. Yeah. yeah. So when it's four degrees and raining in the middle of winter, I'm still running around in short sleeves because <laughs> yeah, that's because the oven's Adelaide gets out the
0: heat. Adelaide gets so cold. It's, yeah. <laughs> oh my god. To be fair though, Adelaide actually uh, it's either really hot or it's really cold. But um, yeah,
1: yeah it's Well, a, We we do have the in between days every well, oh you and do again, in but, fact.
0: I was there for work not long ago, and uh, it was a it was a beautiful mid twenties day. So, oh, and I've got a soft spot for Adelaide. It's a gorgeous place that you have down there. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, because I wanted to put the oven under the main roof of the house, weight became consideration, and I was really nervous about putting a four or five ton mm. oven. You know, by the time you put the stand and then the oven on top, um, I was just worried about putting that on the side or on the edge of my alfresco area. Yeah. So. Um, even with one of, some of the um, lighter ovens, you know, somewhere something around the one ton, um, they didn't really cater for all of the other things which I was looking for. And, you know, I probably could have got an engineer to come out, survey the area and say yes or no. Yeah. But um, in the end, the Zesty Z1100. Which weighs in at about two hundred and forty kilos. Oh, and, that's
0: great! Yeah, yeah, that's, and, yeah, that's
1: brilliant. Yeah, and with the stand, you're probably looking at about three fifty. Oh, that's
0: brilliant. Yeah, right.
1: So weight was no longer an issue.
0: So, is that a custom stand, or do they do they do that as stock? What uh, what's they, the
1: process? Well, they do both, right? So they, they've actually got a couple of different models, and I think in the past year or two, they've released a. Um, A more condensed stand so you can put it on a standard bench space,
0: right? Okay, yep. So you can build your own kitchen bench and okay, yeah, gotcha, right?
1: Right. But um, I basically just whipped up something together in um AutoCAD, Ah. (laughs) (laughs) told them them the height, the width, and everything that needed to be. Okay, and um, yeah, it wasn't a problem for them.
0: So was that stand? was that stainless stand? Uh, Is that what they've made it from?
1: Yep, or the, the frame of the stand is all stainless steel, the same as the. Um, the top part, yep. But the uh, all, all the doors and the sides are powder coated the same color as the dome.
0: All right. So the frame itself is stainless. Yep, got that. What about the doors at the front of the base? What have you done with that?
1: Yeah. So the both the doors at the base and the um, the two side panels are actually the same powder coated color as the dome itself. Right. Which is a black onyx pearl finish, which looks great under different lighting conditions. It's
0: beautiful. I've had a look on your feed and it, it really does look gorgeous. It's a beautiful
1: oven. Yeah, Not not to mention it's like a high gloss finish as well. So ah. it, I find that the high gloss really, you know, complements the stainless steel. Yeah.
0: And do you keep your wood in this section under the oven, uh, oven behind the doors?
1: No, I don't. Right. I've actually built a small section off to the side, which I uh, just got some... Um, Cabinetry, which I put together, and I just stack it in under there. Basically, I keep most of my sometimes tools yeah inside of the oven.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, good idea. Yeah, I'm struggling for a bit of uh, shelf space uh, with mine. All of my under oven area is taken up with my
1: iron bark. So, uh, and you, yeah. you don't find it difficult with uh, rain getting to it?
0: No. So I've built uh, wooden doors over the front. Uh, the design of the of the base it has about oh. Because it's probably about fifteen centimeters rise from the patio, uh, so there's a bit of a lip into it. So, uh, no, my patio could flood, and no water would would, would get under the base. In terms of rainwater, uh, no, I've never had never had an issue uh, with rain getting into yeah, okay. in behind the doors into the into the wood. It's nice and cozy under there for for it so, it, so it gets nice and warm.
1: Yeah, nice. So, tell me a little bit about your warm up and your cool down times. Yeah, so obviously. You know, you you look at all the aesthetics and all that type of gear, and then you get down to, you know, the functional aspect of the wood oven. Mm. So the warm up times are pretty quick for the zesty oven. It usually takes about 60 to 90 minutes to get up to pizza temperature. What? So, what you're talking about, 400 odd degrees
0: or something plus yeah, that where you cook it?
1: Yeah. That's yeah. quick. That's really yeah, quick. And it, you know, that was also important because if you want to do something spare at the moment, you do have that option you know it's going to take an hour to get up to throwing a roast in or something like that so um, I didn't want to spend two and a half hours just to turn the oven on yeah then let something cook for another two hours so yeah
0: sure
1: Uh, what about your cool down how how long will your retained heat last Um, retained heat's not too bad Um, it usually cools down by about 20 hours Mm -hmm. from my experience so um, but that all depends on how hot you have the oven and you know what time do you shut down the oven the night before
0: Yeah, I mean, 20 hours, that's really respectable, though, and that gives you a lot of latitude the second day to do all sorts of cooking in your oven. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Tell me a little bit about uh, some of the other uh, specs of your oven, uh, the size of the floor, uh, some of the other bits that we haven't discussed.
1: Yeah, okay. So immediately there's the aesthetics. Mm. So you've got all of the stainless steel is 316 marine grade, which is corrosion resistant, so you're protected from the elements even in coastal areas. And then you've got the uh, alloy dome capping, which is, as we've already discussed, customizable. Yeah. So you can pick from a whole stack of different powder-coated finishes. So like I said, I went with the Onyx Black Pearl, but um, you can also go with, you know, bright reds and yellows and blues and greens, you know, whatever's going to suit your area. Yeah.
0: Did you have to wait long after ordering it for it to turn up?
1: Um, I ordered it just before Christmas. So it was around about a month but that was because of the Christmas break and all that type of thing as well. So I don't that's know really what it's like post-COVID. Yeah, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah,
0: that's right. Oh, gosh. Yeah, yeah okay. it, it
1: wasn't it wasn't too bad.
0: So you've had it uh, two or three years now, haven't you, I think? Yeah, I think it was about
1: 2018 I got yeah. it. Yeah.
0: So tell me a little bit about the actual internal dome itself.
1: Yeah, so the internal dome is actually a single-piece, 18-mil thick refractory dome, and that's reinforced with stainless steel needles yeah. for additional strength. Right. But um, the dome is actually wrapped in a 50-mil fibre ceramic blanket yep. for insulation, and I think that's rated up to about 250 degrees. In fact, the blanket is the only thing between the refractory dome and the alloy cap. Mm. And I think you'd be amazed how cool the dome is to touch, mid yeah. cook. So, Have you know. ever done temperature checks on that? I know with
0: my oven, uh, we've got a couple of layers of this uh, blanket underneath the uh, the rendered dome and if that oven is 450 degrees inside it's it's sitting at about i don't know 25 degrees on the exterior of, of the oven if that uh, when i when i shoot the infrared thermometer at it it's Amazing,
1: yeah. I I probably should have done a test for this in, pre- in preparation for the podcast. Well, there's your but homework, I, Adrian. Yeah, I, I do. Re- I do remember. I did check that when I first got the oven, mm. and at a guess, I want to say it was around forty degrees. Yeah, sure. Yeah, uh, these modern ovens, though.
0: I mean, they're amazing. Their their insulation uh, is is incredible. It's um, yeah,
1: absolutely. Oh. yeah. So the dome sits on 25-mil refractory fire bricks. Try saying that five times fast. Yeah,
0: it's, it's a tricky one.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that actually comes in quite handy because, like, as we discussed, that we, there's not as much thermal mass as some of the thicker bricks, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, it heats up a lot quicker. Yeah. And also due to the way that heat works, you know, the transfer of heat mm. from hot surfaces to cold surfaces – the 25 mil bricks also allow the oven to quickly recover from cold spots caused by paste, placing a cast iron pot or baking trays and all that type of thing. Even pizzas right. draw heat from the bricks. Yeah. So the, the I do find that the thinner bricks do help in the heat recovery.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, right. And what do they rest on the bricks? Or is it straight onto the uh, the bench or what do they do there at the menu? No, so
1: they've got a 60 mil ISO board, which is essentially mm-hmm. a compressed ceramic installation material. And that insulates whatever is underneath um, up to about uh, 1260
0: degrees, I think it is. <laughs> it's incredible, isn't it? Mm. Uh, what about the size of the actual working surface inside the oven?
1: Yeah, so the the oven floor is about 800 mil wide by 1,000 mil deep. Well, that's interesting, actually, because that's
0: very similar to mine, which is about 105 centimetres in diameter.
1: Yeah. Okay, so is that... In internal width yeah, as well. Yeah, that,
0: that, that's the internal, yeah. yeah well, as far as I'm aware, that's the, yeah, I think it is the, yeah, that's the, I'm fairly certain that's the, don't quote me, it's the working surface, I think. But, you know, it's, I like the width, you know, I like yourself, you know, I like to put lots of stuff in there, uh, have plenty of room to move around as well. I find the more room you've got, uh, the more hot and cold zones you've got to play with in the oven. Yeah, and yeah. I, that versatility is really great, so. Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, having the, the footprint of the actual oven itself is, or the custom stand that, that Zesty built for me was twelve hundred by twelve hundred mil. Oh, so, nice. um, yeah. and because I've got it under the alfresco area, I was, you know, I didn't want it to take up too much real estate. So, you know, when I was looking at the different ovens I could I could purchase, yeah, um, yeah, I, I didn't want to get something which is too big. Hmm. But So it was sort of a happy medium between the larger and smaller ones.
0: But looking at your pictures uh, and and looking at some of the ridiculously lovely pizzas that you've got inside them, uh, it does appear that you've got a fair amount of working surface uh, inside that oven though.
1: Yeah, yeah, you do. So, I mean, when I'm cooking pizzas, uh, the fire's always off to the side, but whenever I'm cooking your roasts and stuff, the fire's at the back so I Mm. can slide trays in and out. In fact, that was one of the nice things about the oven as well the mouth of the oven is actually 575 mil wide. So if you've got two pans, which are you know 25 centimetres each, it's quite easy to slide them in and out and manage your temperatures.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'd be interested on your view on this. I had a podcast listener uh, email me a couple of weeks back, and he was asking about the pros and cons of having the fire located at different positions in the oven. And I I gave him a response, really, in, in, with regard to the experience I've got with my round oven. But I'd be interested in your thoughts on the fire placement in your oven, where you tend to do it. Uh, you've mentioned you have it on the side. What about when you're cooking other things? Do you find that you always have the uh, fire on, on in the same position,
1: or do you mix that around? Um, the the only two positions I use is the side for pizza. And that's because every pizziolo that I follow has it on the side. <laughs>
0: yeah, I know. So, yeah. Wobetide well, asked like, to do something different. Yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> but um, w- whenever I cook roasts and all that type of thing, the fire is always at the back because having the fire so close to the mouth of the oven, it means that you're not going to get that variable temperature range by moving the trays in and out. So, I would always. Yeah have the fire at the back when cooking anything but pizza.
0: Yeah, and, and that is generally what I do as well. I think from a purely romantic perspective, uh, where I've got my oven positioned, if I have the fire at the back of the oven, I can go back onto the deck and sit in my chair, drink a glass of red wine and <laughs> see the fire. But yeah. if it's not, in, if it's off to the side, I can't see it. So for me, I love looking at the thing as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know where you're coming from with that. Yeah, yeah, fairly addicted to fire. Now, let's talk about pros and cons of your, of your oven. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, well, look, I I don't like to do pros and cons because what's important to me isn't important to everyone else. Sure. And vice versa. Hmm. Like, would I recommend zesty wood-fired ovens to other people? 100% Hmm. with one small caveat. Okay. Don't expect the zesty domestic ovens to have the same heat retention as a full brick oven. And Like, you know, we briefly mentioned this earlier. Yeah. Um, The thermal mass between the two not the same, so you can't expect the same performance. It's not a fair shootout. No, it's not as no, agreed. But um, does the oven have good heat retention? Absolutely. Like if I shut the oven down after a night of cooking pizza, when I wake up in the morning, the oven will still be about 220-ish. Yeah, that's brilliant. So you can can throw a roast in and then by the evening, the oven's probably going to be at about 70 degrees. In fact, the couple of times where I've cooked like a – lamb shoulder in oh, a love low and slow style. I've put the lamb shoulder into the oven first thing in the morning and didn't even look at it until yeah. about 6.30 ah. and the, the bone came out clean. So yeah. success.
0: I, I think that's genius. I think for folks who might be listening to the show, haven't got a wood-fired oven, I would imagine that they're thinking of getting a wood-fired oven probably primarily for pizza, but there is so much that you can do with these ovens and day two cooking, day three cooking even. There's some really exciting times to use this retain heat.
1: Mm. I know where you're coming from, mm. but I like I live on my own, and mm. whenever I have a pizza night, the entire Saturday is just a mess. <laughs> I'm doing the shopping, I'm chopping the yeah, wood, busy, I'm making right? the dough, I'm preparing the yeah. ingredients and all that type of thing. The <laughs> and then you know, as the pizza night goes on, you're having a few wines. Yep. You wake up Sunday morning hungover. Yeah, I that's. Don't right. to, I don't even want to think about cooking in there anymore. So. Oh, that's
0: well. There you go. Okay, fair enough too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so yeah, like I mean, that's that's another thing. Like for me, cooking on the second and third day wasn't really an issue. So. Right.
0: So that wasn't a priority for you. For yeah, no, cool. not at
1: all. Yeah, gotcha. But it, it's a it's a nice to have option to cook for the next day. Yeah, sure, but not essential. Okay, good. Let's talk about wood do you have
0: a preferred wood that you like to use do you mix it up depending on what you're doing in the oven what what do you do yeah absolutely
1: absolutely i actually use two types of wood so red gum is quite uh Easy to find in South Australia, okay. so that's my that's my staple. I should go to abs- yeah yeah. I use it for absolutely everything, mm. and the other one I use is uh, olive wood. Mm. I'm quite fortunate that a, a friend of mine has a family farm, so every now and again when they prune the olive trees, he'll bring me a couple of boxes of uh, olive wood.
0: Okay, I'm a bit jealous now. That's um, yeah. So <laughs> I
1: I only use um the olive wood when i cook pizzas because i find that the olive wood seems to have a higher intensity flame Mm. which is ideal for a good crust and char on the pizzas yeah that is interesting but as soon as the pizzas are done i switch back to the red gum so
0: i use iron bark now i have actually tried red gum it's pretty hard to get red gum up here in queensland and for those who don't know australia too well uh uh, South Australia Adelaide uh, Queensland that they're certainly not the same place with regard to climate and iron bark is is certainly easier for me to get. I've got used to iron bark I've been using it now for a couple of years uh, it's super hot it, it produces such little ash at the end of the night. I, I really love it but huh, it, the one downside of iron bark is uh, I get splinters and, and I, <laughs> I used to get really bla- bad splinters and it doesn't matter if I'm chopping my wood which I hate chopping wood. But if I'm reaching under the oven when it's dark to get a new piece of uh, wood to put on the fire, if I'm not wearing my gloves, as I'm sliding my hand in to grab the piece of wood, I'm going to get these damn things in my fingers. And two weeks ago, I got such a deep splinter, I ended up at at, uh, uh, at the doctor to try and get it out. He couldn't Ooh. get it out. He, he, yeah, he just said, look, um, I can give you an injection. I said, no, you're not. Uh, so he said, "Well, you're just going to have to wait for it to work its way out." It took two weeks to work its way out, and it would have been oh, wow. in total length about eight mil. It was, it was, it was terrible. Anyway, wow. Huh, enough of my story. Splinters. Are they're they're nasty. An occupational hazard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do you get it with red gum? Do, do you find that it's a splintery wood?
1: Uh, I, I find I get more. Well, I'm pretty lazy, so I don't wear gloves at all for anything. <laughs> so. I f- I you're a brave man,
0: I'm... Adrian. You're a brave man. I don't know how you do that. Seriously. <laughs> oh, look, I'm wearing it, look, welder's
1: gloves. Welder's it, gloves i got. It's, it's a rite of passage. I feel like if you don't get splinters, <laughs> you haven't earned it. and your stripes.
0: <laughs>
1: but um, I find that I'll get more splinters when I'm actually chopping the wood as opposed to using it. So yeah. whenever I get like a dozen splinters in my hand, at least it's all in one day and then i spend the next Few hours picking them all out. Yeah. Your
0: lazy Sunday after your pizza. Yeah, is pretty, you? yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah pretty much. Yeah. In fact, I'm
1: actually going to get some tomorrow as well. So, oh, right. okay. So I'll let you know how that goes. Yeah,
0: yeah. Do let us know. Ah, uh, great. So talking about cutting wood, yeah, it's not my favourite pastime. How do you go about doing it?
1: Uh, well, we don't all have triple cut logs like you guys in Queensland. So,
0: <laughs> oh, that's gold, mate. Yeah, okay. I am a bit lucky there. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So I, I usually go down to the local depot and hand pick them.
0: Right. Okay. So
1: I specifically look for logs that don't need a lot of splitting. Yeah. If I do need to split them, it's only going to be a one-off. So I, I handpicking them is highly recommended in my if you've got the option to. Yeah. So what sort of quantities are you are you
0: purchasing at a time?
1: Um, it depends if I can steal the ute from my dad, or <laughs> if I have to go down in my own car, if I get the ute, I'll try to load it up as much as possible. Yeah. But if I'm putting it in the back of my car, I'm probably getting maybe 100 kilo at a time.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's good. So are they selling it by the by the 100 kilo blocks, or how does the, the, the depot sell
1: it? Oh, um, at the place that I go, you basically drive onto the tray, weigh the car before oh, and after.
0: Okay. Oh, that's nice and simple. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So if you do have to split it when you get home, are you using an axe? Uh, uh, what are you What are you doing?
1: Um, I've actually got a unique little device called a kindling cracker. It's actually a cast iron unit which has a splitting wedge that points up and that's set inside of a safety ring. So to split a piece of wood, you place the wood inside of the safety ring so it's resting on top of the splitting wedge and then you just strike it with a sledgehammer and the wood actually falls away either side of the wedge. Uh, So I basically got sick and tired of... Using a normal <laughs> sledgehammer and then have logs flying towards my shins, so yeah, mm. I, um, I started that hurts, looking for right? That really sl- hurts. Oh, yeah. It oh. <laughs> it really <laughs> yeah, it does. I see. It really does.
0: It does. I see. The kiwi cracker was made by the kiwis. Go the kiwis. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, how good is that? Yeah,
1: yeah, I know. And it, <laughs> I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure on this, but I think the story goes the concept of it was actually a uh, science project by a young schoolgirl. Really, and her dad was an engineer who actually put it into. Put it. Mock uh, deduction. Oh yeah. that
0: is that's cool. So aside from y- your red gum and olive wood, have you tried other types of
1: wood? Um, no, I haven't, but I have been looking into trying other woods, and hmm. some uh, there's another type of wood in Adelaide which we seem to have called blue gum, oh, yeah. which I'm led to believe has got similar burning properties to red gum. So a similar burning temperature, a similar um, you know reduction to ash. Right. Um, but I haven't tried it for myself, and I'd, I'd, I'd actually be quite interested to see if anyone out there is um, yeah has tried it before as well. So save me from doing the research.
0: Yeah, you bet. Well, if there are any listeners out there listening to this episode, uh, you can get in touch with uh, us at cooking. Let us know. Really interested to hear what other types of wood you're using in your woodfight oven, whether you be in Australia or anywhere on the planet. We'd, we'd love to hear about that. How much wood? Do you think you go through on a typical Friday pizza night in terms of weight? Have you got a sense about that?
1: No, I've got no idea to be honest. No. Um, like, would it be a couple of beer box size, something like that? Well, because I've got a um, a cabinet which is full of wood, essentially. Mm. Um, I'm just picking them off in pieces as as needed. I usually use one bit of wood per pizza. Right. I always try to keep the flame going. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Not sure to to be honest, I couldn't tell you.
0: I think I'd probably go through maybe 30. If I was doing pizza and I wanted to get the oven really hot for another couple of days, retain heat cooking, I'd probably go through 30 to 40 kilos of of wood, uh, which is it sounds a lot, but actually, iron bark's really heavy, you know. It's uh, yeah,
1: but you've also got the larger oven as well, so that's going to take a lot a lot more time to heat up,
0: yeah, absolutely. It and actually, it's a good point. It probably takes me about two and a half hours, uh, to to get it to, to temp. Oh, wow. Um, so it does take a while, but. You know, if I'm putting that on uh, early, mid-afternoon, I just sit in front of the oven on a Saturday afternoon and, yeah, just drink wine. It's, it's pretty good. <laughs> good <laughs> way to a- spend an afternoon. Yeah, it is. It's great. Okay, let's talk pizza. Yes. Now, clearly, you're amazing at uh, cooking pizza. You're too kind. Uh, no, well, not really, because for those of you who... Aren't yet following Adrian on Instagram, and you should be by now if you're listening to this podcast. Your pizza's really are quite stunning. Let's have a bit of a chat. Talk to me about the journey you've gone through uh, to get to this stage of your of your cooking.
1: Well, my first some of my first memories of pizza was mum making some homemade pizzas inside of the um, the Weber. So, I guess that's where my fascination with pizza may have started. But in about 2015, my parents bought a um, wood oven as well. And that sort of... Is that a zesty as well? Funny you mention it. Yes, it is. Ah, good stuff.
0: Ah, wow, very yes, good. Yes, it
1: is. Yeah, so that's where my obsession started with uh, wood ovens. So uh, the first pizza night comes around and it's like, okay, mum, teach me your recipe. Yeah. And my background is Italian heritage.
0: Ah, now I wondered that, Adrian. I wondered that. Yeah, yeah, very good. Where Can I ask... Little segue, wh- whereabouts in Italy is uh, I love Italy. Uh, Roman history for me is fabulous. So wh- whereabouts?
1: Yeah, so my mum is from um, Benevento, which is just yep. outside of Napoli, and my dad is from Ascoli, which is sort of mid Italy but on the uh, eastern side. Right.
0: Just a little segue, uh, I just love Italy. Our family has visited Italy a number of times. Uh, we particularly like uh, Verona. I love my opera. Go to the Arena de Verona, uh, northern Italy, and uh, it's just such a magic place. I love, love uh, Italy.
1: Yeah. Vieta Benz.
0: Yeah. Uh, it's just, yep. just, yeah, it's gorgeous. So, right. So, your mum was cooking pizza in the Weber oven. And so, you're trying to duplicate her recipes. Now, anyone, who,
1: yeah. <laughs> anyone who has an Italian mother would know that there are no recipes. <laughs> ah, there
0: you go. <laughs> so, I
1: basically got the ingredients and I said, okay, here's the ingredients. Go ahead and make it and I'm sitting there with my notebook taking, you know, how much flour are you using this and they turn my back to walk away and all of a sudden mum's added more water or more whatever. And it's like, well, what did you just Bravo. do there? So it was uh it was interesting. So because she made that dough, turned out fantastic.
0: Yeah. Of course.
1: Yeah. Then You know, fast forward a month or two and I have my first pizza night at their house. So I invite my friends around. Oh, dear. And uh, mum and dad went out of town. So I had the oven to myself. So No stress. Yeah, no stress. (laughs) So I I tried to reproduce the recipe and failed miserably. This thing was hard as a rock. (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah, it was unusable. (laughs) Oh, no. And obviously, you know, being a first timer, i got no idea how to correct any of this. Yeah. So I quickly just jumped online, looked up pizza recipe because meanwhile I've got guests arriving in four hours <laughs> and I found Jamie Oliver recipe. Oh, genius. Lovely. And this was like a, a two to three hour process from needing to cook. Right. So I followed the recipe and sure enough, it got me through the night. Oh, good. So good plan B. Success, yeah. Success <laughs> number one. <laughs> I started to do a few more pizza nights here and there and- you know, I started to learn a little bit more, and I was actually talking to a restaurant owner, and he said, for immediate improvements, look for good quality flour.
0: Okay. Mm.
1: So he recommended two types, um, Le Chinguas and Caputo. So he goes, if you use any of those, I guarantee you, without changing any of the rest of your recipe, you're going to notice improvements.
0: Wow. Okay. And sure enough, he was right. Interesting. Can you pronounce the first one again, Adrian?
1: Le cinque stagioni. Okay, so gotcha. the five yeah. the five stages. I think it translates to. right. Okay, sure. So, do you order this
0: online? Uh, have you got a local supplier? I mean, Adelaide's yeah, full, local,
1: full of foodies. So, yeah, yeah there's local suppliers in most places. But um, I think if you want some of the fanciest stuff, you do need to get an account with a distributor. Uh, okay, sure. But for the, for the stuff which I use, it's all local. Yeah, let well, me
0: And so that made a big difference, yeah.
1: Just playing with these different
0: interesting, yeah, right, okay.
1: So after a while, I've started to find that the dough was very yeasty, and you know, when you're considering you're making dough in three hours, you're using large quantities of yeast. Yeah. So I began to do some research, and the more I researched, there's just like hundreds of different recipes, and they all claim to do things. (laughs) You know, the world's best recipe. Yeah but why are they all different? And that's one thing that sort of stuck with me and I really wanted to like nail down why these were all different. So a couple of things I picked up on was how to scale recipes by using baker's percentages.
0: Okay, so what are baker's percentages?
1: What what does that mean? So essentially it's a method used to maintain consistency for a recipe at any scale. So it doesn't matter if you're making one kilo of dough or 20 kilos but the first and most crucial thing about baker's percentages that you need to be aware of is everything is measured by weight. Ah, right. You know, cups, teaspoons and tablespoons are not accurate measurements. Right. So, like, even with liquids, we weigh the liquids as well. Really? Okay. So sure. even for, like, for instance, you've got water and oil. mm you know, a cup of water and a cup of oil was going to be the same amount. Yeah, but they both have different weights because yeah. they've got different densities. Densities, absolutely. So, gotcha. Everything we do is weighed. Okay,
0: and you think that really does improve your consistency with your results?
1: Yeah, hundred percent. Okay, because you know the the weight of something is never going to change. Yeah. So you know, if I weigh something at my house or at your house, it's yeah, it's going to weigh the same. Yeah, but right. If I get a uh, a cup of yeah. Cup of flour at your house and a cup of flour at my house. The yep. cups we use will volumes different. Be
0: different. Yep, sure, okay. So you need a pretty good scale then.
1: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So um, since we're all home cooks, we're going to be dealing with small quantities of things. So you may also need to invest in a jeweler scale. Okay, what's a jeweler's scale? So it's basically a scale that's capable of measuring small quantities, approximately like. 0.1 of a gram. What? That's tiny. Is, yeah. yeah. Well, when you consider how much yeast we're using in some of these recipes, especially mm-hmm. for really small quantities, um, you need that ac- type of accuracy. So so you're talking
0: minuscule weights of yeast, are you?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. Because it's going to multiply. It's a bacteria. It, it's, it's, correct, it's, a, it's living.
1: Yeah, right. Gotcha. And I mean, you can find these things on eBay for about $15, $20. Can for-
0: you? Okay. Do you want to walk us through a an example of, of using these baker's percentages? That, that might help to unpack and make it a little easier to understand.
1: Yeah, sure. So baker's percentages are percentages given to every ingredient in the recipe with respect to the total weight of flour that we use. Okay. So for example, let's use 1,000 grams of flour. Yep. So flour is always the key ingredient. Everything else is going to reference The flour. The flour. So flour is always 100%. So 100% of 1,000 grams of flour is 1,000 grams. Gotcha. Let's say we want a hydration or water content of 65%. Yep. 65% of 1,000 grams of flour is 650 grams of water. I see what you're doing. Yep. So if we go on to salt, we want a salt content of 2.5%. 2.5% of 1,000 grams of flour is... 25 grams of salt. Gotcha. And with yeast, and this is why we need the jeweler scale. Right. Let's say we want 0.1% yeast. 0.1% of 1,000 grams of flour is one gram of yeast.
0: Yeah, that's nothing. You could
1: never do that with a teaspoon. Absolutely. (laughs) No, you can't.
0: There's just no way. I see what you're saying. So by working with percentages, you can scale that up to different weights of flour. So yeah,
1: gotcha. I see what you're saying. So now if you're doing 20 kilos of flour or you scale it down to 500 grams of flour, those percentages are always the same. You just multiply it to whatever the weight of the flour is. So that way you can get your consistency.
0: Right. Okay.
1: So another one of the key things that I learned when I started going down these rabbit holes was the relationship between yeast, time and temperature. And there was actually a forum post that I found where one of the moderators did some amazing work in calculating the theoretical fermentation times for different temperatures and yeast quantities. Yeah. Right. And that's basically where my spreadsheet was born.
0: Okay. Hang on. So you've drafted up a spreadsheet. To do all the hard work for you—that's pretty hardcore, Adrian.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. You know, like, like I said before, I don't do things by heart. No, it doesn't so. sound like it.
0: Okay, so your, your your computer is controlling your pizza.
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Welcome to the Matrix. <laughs> yeah. So. <laughs> oh, yeah.
0: and there's another one coming out. I hear that's yeah, great news. I, I heard that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I copied all of this data into the spreadsheet, <laughs> and um, then I was just by using some basic maths and some complex formulas. I can essentially punch in the number of dough balls I want to make, the weight of each bowl, the baker's percentages that I want to use for my recipe, what type of yeast I'm going to be using for my recipe, the temperature that the dough will be fermenting at, as well as the time I need to make the dough. Wow, that's great. Mm. As I'm entering all of these parameters, it just spits out exactly what I need to do. That's genius. That must have a lot of time, though. And I guess for
0: consistency, like you say – you are going to get consistent results because you're doing the same things the same way every single time.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And like, I find that I'm quite open about giving out the recipes, yep. like, and, and the things that I've learned for that matter. Like, if you ask me, as you know, we're having this conversation, yep. you know, I'm giving you pretty much details that the spreadsheet would pump out for me. Yeah, but nobody gets access to the spreadsheet. Oh, it's secret. It's under lock it's, it's under lock and key. It's
0: Adrian's secret sauce, and that is fair enough. I'm a little bit like that with my cheese making. I've got these run sheets and. You know that that is kind of uh, Mark's secret little formula to how I make my Stilton, or yeah. Have
1: you tried mozzarella?
0: Yes, yeah, I have, and uh, I think that needs to be an episode. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, funny you mentioned that. Yeah. Episode fifteen, no, uh, it is planned for a future one. I've done it uh, mozzarella two ways. Obviously, cow's milk mozzarella, but um, I've done a thirty-minute mozzarella, which is dead easy to make. It's all uh, online. But uh, if you want to take it a little more seriously, it's a it's an all day event. It, it usually takes me about seven or eight hours for the whole process of, of the mozzarella. Oh wow! But man, and the reason that you do the long version as opposed to the short version is the uh, acid development. It's slightly more acidic uh, the longer the process, and it's amazing. Like I kid you not, actually, any home cheese that you make, uh, if you know what you're doing, you follow a nice run sheet with a spreadsheet, and you, you spit the same thing out every time. Uh, you do get consistent results. The great thing about mozzarella is you can freeze it. So, when I make it, I've got a big 24 liter vat that I make it in, and it yeah. makes a lot of mozzarella. And then oh, we, wow. we bag it up and we freeze it, and it will thaw out beautifully. And then it goes on top of the pizza. In fact, I've still got some in the freezer, I think, from about seven months ago. And oh, wow. if we okay. brought that out, it would still be stunning. Yeah, it's great stuff. So, yeah. um, You should try making some mozzarella, Adrian. It it is on the list of things to try. Well well done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Look, you know, with with all these things, you know, the way I look at it is the information is all out there. You just need to go searching for it. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's lots of, like even these days, there's lots of apps Mm. that you can use to calculate pizza recipes or you can go into online calculators. Mm. But I found that by doing the research and the maths and, you know, all the spreadsheet, apart from – the work that the guy and the the moderator on that forum did, um, it really did help me to learn a lot more about what I'm doing and the process involved. Gotcha.
0: Right. Okay. So uh, your pizza
1: journey. Yeah. So in about 2018, that's when I bought the zesty wood oven. Yep. And that's when the pizzas started to become more frequent. So each pizza cook was an experiment with different hydration, different Fermentation times, different salt measurements. So basically, trying to hone in on what I liked. And in 2019, I went to go visit my cousins in Perth. Right. And uh, one of them there is a crazier pizza guy than I am. So <laughs> Seriously? he introduced me. Yeah. Uh-huh. Believe it or not.
0: As well, an Italian. Yeah. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah. So he introduced me to the concept of contemporary Neapolitan pizza and pre-fermented dough. And I had no idea what this was at the time. Yeah, right. Me neither. (laughs) So basically there's two methods that you could use, bigger and poolish. And, you know, probably most listeners these days would have heard them or maybe seen them online. But for those who haven't, bigger pre-ferment is a dry 45 to 50% hydrated flour. Okay. And what happens is the next day you complete dough by adding all the missing water content and salt right where with um poolish the poolish preferment is 100% hydrated flour and you complete the dough by adding the missing flour and salt
0: okay that that's interesting so the only difference between the bigger and the poolish is the hydration amount essentially yeah, as
1: far as i can tell right yeah.
0: So I make a ciabatta bread, um, it's, it's an average one, it's okay, it, the family likes it, kids like it, so that's a tick. Uh, but I made the Polish the day before, uh, and yeah. That, yeah, that does have equal quantities of, I'm um, looking at my run sheet here for my ciabatta bread, <laughs> uh, that has got equal quantities, uh, yeah, that has got 1,000 grams of flour and 1,000 grams of water, yeah, right. Yeah, so there's your 100% hydration yeah, for
1: the uh, uh, pre-ferment. Right. You're, you're already
0: halfway there. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah. Be nice if it was a little better, but hey, it, all these things are a work in progress, aren't they? It's um,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: it's still a lot of fun to make, and it, it is uh, pretty difficult. Uh, well, I find it being so wet the next day, it is pretty hard to handle.
1: Yeah, well, it's funny you say that because sometimes that could just be um, improved by using different types of flour, right? Okay, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Sure, there was a YouTube channel called Italia Squisita.
0: Oh, love which, them, love uh, them. Great! Oh, you know them? Yeah, I've watched a few of the, a few of the uh, episodes. Oh, they're great! Yeah,
1: Yeah. I, I, yeah, I love them. I found them great for Italian cooking. Yeah, and they're really informative and detailed in certain parts. Mm. But in the early days, they didn't have subtitles, and my Italian is nowhere near as good as it used to be. So (laughs) I, I pick up on every like few words and it's usually enough to piece together what i need to do yeah but there's always a couple of key details that i was missing out on and you know once they started adding the subtitles and that's when i found all the the pieces starting to fall into place because there's all the information i was missing out on yeah so basically from that website i learned about the proteins and flour as well as something called the w factor w factor right yeah so the w now, I'm not going to pretend to know a lot about this, but essentially the W factor is a measurement of the gluten strength of the dough. Ah, okay. So the higher the W, the stronger the gluten okay, will be. Okay, so sure. you hear people talk about like strong flours. Yes. It's it's because of this W factor. So right. a, a higher W will have a higher strength gluten. Ah,
0: and right. most
1: high-quality Italian flours... We'll have data sheets online where you can actually look this up. Oh, right.
0: Oh, okay. That is pretty hardcore. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, you won't find it for every flower. Yep. But um, at, at least the brands that I use, they do have it online. Right. Okay. And then you've got the uh, the proteins. The higher protein flowers tend to lend themselves better towards longer fermentation ah, times. Gotcha. As well as better water retention. Right. So when you're doing those ciabatta breads, which are, I'm guessing somewhere around 80% hydration. Yeah. You're probably going to find it handles better because it's stronger gluten, right. As well as it's handling the water better. So, oh, cool. Yeah,
0: I'll check that L- look out. Look into that. Yeah, no, good on
1: you. Oh, good tip there. All right, Now, that sounds great. So, I was making my doughs and I wasn't paying attention to any of the types of flour. I was just using the double zero standard for both steps. But I, from that uh, Italia squisita site, I learned that preferments seem to benefit from using. The higher W and the higher protein content right. for the preferments, and the lower W and lower protein contents when you complete the dough uh, the next day. Okay, that, that's
0: interesting. Yeah, and
1: right. an, another key was the percentage of preferment that you have for your dough. If the percentage is too high, you may not get the same results without introducing um, some additional sugars. So, how do you go about? Preparing your dough, then. Okay, let me just preface this by saying I'm not a professional. I'm self taught. I don't have all the answers. You've got quite a few, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I know what works for me. <laughs>
0: yeah, come on. But to be fair, your pizzas are some of the sexiest, most spectacular looking pizzas on Instagram. Seriously, there's about two profiles I go visit, and you're one of them uh, to get my pizza fixed. Seriously, <laughs> they're ridiculously perfect. And, um, can't wait to come around to your place and try one.
1: Yeah, thanks, <laughs> and, thanks for the kind words. No. Um, it's, look, it, you know, it's a it, it's a journey. Like you, you, start somewhere and you get somewhere else by you know, trialing and error and yeah, that type of gear. So, but um, as far as the the process, how do I prepare the dough? I use these days. I've been using the bigger method, right? And I find it's more fragrant, digestible, and lighter on okay. the stomach. Yeah, right. And I also find that the bigger helps to improve the gluten strength. Right. When you're cooking the pizza dough, the stronger gluten will try to vaporize, but that steam basically puffs up the crust so you get some beautiful airy crusts on the sides. And I'm talking like maybe an inch thick as opposed to wow. you know, yeah. a centimeter or so.
0: Okay, so if the gluten was weak, it's just not going to create that lovely bubble. Is that, is
1: that what you're saying? Yeah. So
0: the stronger the the gluten, the more elastic that crust bubble is. Is that how it works?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm I'm basically trying to trap air in the crusts and not dough. right. Okay, gotcha. So I'll, I'll put a lot of effort into trying to get that. And is, and is is that bigger? Is that tricky to hydrate? Yeah, it is. So unless you've got a good mixer or a, um, I think they prefer to use a spiral yep. mixer for it. You may actually find that the poolish method is easier. Okay. If you've just got a like a smaller KitchenAid or yeah, something like right. that. okay. So to walk you through the process, let's assume that we're going to make five or six dough balls each weighing about 280 grams. Okay. And we're going to use a bigger pre-ferment of 70%.
0: So is that the standard sort of quantity, six dough balls? Is that what you normally do if you're having people around?
1: No. Um, no, I just use that example because that will require about 1,000 grams of flour. Yeah, right. Okay. So it's just an easier number to explain yeah, gotcha. the process. On average, I'll probably do 8 to 12 dough balls whenever I do a pizza night. Do you
0: freeze your pizzas, uh, your, over, your leftovers? Have no. You, do, you, do you tend to do that for for your Sunday recovery?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> they, they do get, there's always yeah. one yeah. or two left over, and I'll usually have yeah, them nice. during the week. We'll bring them into work, and everyone's. Yeah. Into a man. Okay.
0: <laughs> so you've talked about the 70% uh, bigger pre-ferment. Why, why 70%?
1: Because it will leave you with 30% flour with unfermented ah, natural sugars. Okay. So really it can be anything. Like I'm still experimenting yeah. myself, but I find 70% really works well for me. Like it's quite common you see people say 100% bigger. Yeah, right. But the, one of the issues I seem to have had with that is depending on how long you've fermented the bigger for, there may be no natural sugars left in the flour for the yeast to eat. So by the time you go to make the rest of the dough balls, you're not going to get a good rise. Right. But there are some ways around this as well. Like I mentioned a bit earlier, like you can add a little bit of sugar or some honey or diastatic malt to give the yeast a bit more sugars to feast on.
0: So what's um? That's a new one for me. Diastatic malt. What's what's that?
1: So it's essentially like a neutral additive right. that. Uh, can introduce sugars without affecting the taste of the dough. Yeah. Most likely, you probably use it when you make breads or sourdough and all that type of thing. Okay, right. But I have seen people use it in pizza as well. Right, interesting. But I'm a bit of a purist, so <laughs> unless it's one of the four key ingredients, it doesn't go in the dough. <laughs> okay. So for the full recipe, we go back to our baker's percentages. Flour, 100%. So 100% of 1,000 grams is our... Thousand grams of flour, but we're going to split that with our bigger percentages. So, because we're doing a bigger pre ferment of 70%, that's going to be 700 grams of flour used for the bigger. And then we're going to complete the dough the next day using our remaining 300 okay, yep. grams. Gotcha.
0: So, what type, you, you've tried a few things, I think, but what type of flour do you
1: use? Right. So, as, as I mentioned earlier, the pre ferments tend to uh, perform better when you use a higher uh, protein and higher w yep. where when you complete the dough we use lower protein and lower w's right. so i use two types of flour when i make my doughs. i use kaputo manitoba right which i use for the bigger and that's Tipo zero not double zero not double zero interesting okay. yeah and that's got a protein of fourteen point five percent, high, yeah. and a W factor of three hundred and seventy to three hundred and ninety.
0: So the higher the W factor, just to confirm, that's uh, the uh, for the, the hot, pre-ferment, yeah. So that's the strength of the gluten. So that, that's the
1: strength of the gluten. That's quite high. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, and then to complete the dough the next day, I'll just use Caputo Classica, which is your typical double uh, zero flour. It's got a protein of eleven point five. Okay and a W somewhere around 220 to 240. So the specs on those, are a little bit different, aren't they? Okay. Yeah, 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 a lot lower. Okay, interesting. So when we complete the dough, the flour must always be weaker than the flour that we used in the bigger. So that was one of the keys that I picked up from the Italia Squisita YouTube page.
0: Right, okay, that is interesting.
1: So for the hydration of the dough, I've been using 70% hydration. So 70% of 1,000 grams of flour, 700 grams of water.
0: Are you using tap water or are you using... uh, Yeah, filtered tap. Filtered tap water, gotcha. Yep, okay, all
1: right. So that water is actually split to 50% hydrate the bega. So this is where the maths sort of starts to get a a bit out of control. Yeah. (laughs) So 350 grams of water will be for our bega, and the other 350 grams of the 700 total will go towards completing our dough. Right. Okay. So just a side note though, if you're starting out, um high hydration doughs are difficult to handle. So, you know, I recommend working your way up to it. Start out with sixty to sixty five percent until you're more comfortable. That's a that's a good tip, sure. Yeah, so then we get on to the salt content and you won't need this until the second stage when we complete the dough. But I use about two point three percent salt.
0: What type of salt, Adrian? Do you use? Are you Using flaky salt dissolves easier. What? What? What do you? Uh, just sea salt. Just standard crystallized sea salt.
1: Yeah, nothing special. Nothing special. Just run of the mill.
0: Okay. Are you sure your spreadsheet spits that out for you?
1: It's just standard <laughs> run of the mill. Just standard run of the mill salt. Okay. It just says salt. Does
0: it? Not pink Himalayan? Nothing. Okay. Nothing special. No. Okay. Actually, right. there
1: are a couple of people I've seen use it. I haven't tried it for myself, but um, is that right? Oh, worth, there you go. Yeah. Probably.
0: Yeah. Worth a go. Okay. All right.
1: I like to have the salt a little bit lower than the standard 2.5%, but that's purely by personal taste. Okay. And I, I find that if you do have pizzas like the next day, sometimes 25 to 3% salt is a bit too salty. You don't taste it at the time you pull oh, it out of the oven, but you taste it after.
0: Is that right? Okay. Yeah, so yeah right.
1: I, I like to keep it at about 23 Okay. So 2.3% of 1,000 grams of flour, 23 grams of salt. Sure. Now, for pre-ferments 70% or above, typically I like to add all of the bigger in one hit. Right. However, when you do pre-ferments less than 70%, I like to split the yeast in proportion to the bigger percentage.
0: Okay, so why would you split the yeast into both stages of, of making the dough like that?
1: because this way we can avoid the full amount of yeast over fermenting ah. smaller quantities of flour and that's that it can become quite acidic right okay and you know this isn't anything that i've read anywhere it's just something i've learned from personal experience but when you think about it it sort of makes logical sense yeah that's clever it does yep gotcha and the other thing is like you also need to be aware of what type of yeast that you're using okay so not all yeasts are the same you know so for my recipes if you're going to be using fresh yeast, um, I'll use 0.3 percent of a thousand grams of flour which is three grams of fresh yeast right Active dry yeast is about 0.13 percent of a thousand grams of flour, which is 1.3 grams okay and if you're using instant yeast, I would use 0.1% 0.1 percent of a thousand grams of flour which is one gram.
0: Yeah, right. Okay, so you, you definitely need to know a little bit about the different yeasts that are available, I guess, if you're going to pull this thing off. So for the benefit of some of the listeners who might not know about the different types of yeast, what is, essentially is the difference between active dry yeast and instant yeast?
1: Well, apart from the instant yeast slot being slightly more powerful, the active yeast needs to be activated. So you dissolve it in water. Sometimes you might try to bloom it a little bit with um, a little bit of flour, But, um, yeah, usually I just dissolve it straight into the water. Okay. Where instant yeast can just be thrown directly Ah. into a dry mixture.
0: Okay, straight with the flour. Okay. Well, that's a really great breakdown on the recipe. Let's talk a little bit about the process because, I mean, I guess that's equally as important.
1: Yeah. So let's say I plan on cooking pizzas at 7 p.m. on a Saturday night. Yep. That's the target point for my dough to be fully fermented and ready to use. Yep. So the process actually starts at about six PM on Friday nights. So you rewind the clock and yeah, gotcha. Yeah. Mm. So that's when I begin to prepare all the ingredients to make the bigger. So like we just discussed earlier, I've got seven hundred grams of flour, three hundred and fifty grams of water, and three grams of fresh yeast.
0: Ah. Okay. So I picked up that before so you are using fresh yeast where on earth do you get fresh yeast from <laughs> i can't seriously i can't find it anywhere i mean maybe it's a brisbane thing i don't know we're not quite as foodie
1: as adelaide i think you might be surprised most supermarkets will have it especially if they've got a deli section really oh. yeah so but I, I do find that you do need to ask for it so it, it's so not- you're saying i'm not looking hard enough or you're just not asking. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the two.
0: Yeah, one of the probably, two. Probably a bit of both of it. I didn't know that though. That's interesting. But it, okay. It does
1: look odd when you walk into somewhere and ask for like ten grams of yeast and they charge you like twenty cents for it. Is that so? Uh,
0: so is that, oh, that's, so? You can you can pick and choose. So do, do you yeah. do, do you get it from Coles? Is that where you're getting it from?
1: Um, we've got a a place here called Tony and Marks, which is a fruit and veg type of place. And we also have uh, Foodlands, which is your general supermarket where we get all of our groceries, and they have it as well. So,
0: okay, well, that is really great to know because uh, you know you just have to go to pretty much any channel on YouTube, uh, and you know most of them are, uh, are using fresh yeast. I'm a bit jealous because I haven't tried it, but I do love working with yeast. But well, yeah. the
1: the one thing I don't that annoys me about fresh yeast yeah. is they're, they're highly perishable, so right. you're buying it every time you want to make dough.
0: Oh, are you so, okay?
1: Right. So, if you do want to be making dough every weekend, it may actually be a benefit to switch over to a, either active dry or instant yeah, yeast. Sure. Because you've always you'll always have it on hand and it will last a few months.
0: Uh, okay. So there are some benefits with not being hundred yeah, percent pure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> You're
1: right. So to begin the process, I'll get my bowl full of the seven hundred grams of flour, and then I'll dissolve the yeast into the water. And then I'll slowly pour the water into the flour. But don't add it all at once. I mix it slowly with a spoon. And once that little bit of water has been absorbed, then I'll continue to add more water to the mix and continue to stir until all of the water is absorbed in usually about four or five different uh, pours. Right. And note that we're not actually kneading the beer. We're just simply trying to hydrate the flour because okay. we don't want to be developing gluten at this stage. Don't know why? It's just too early. I read. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's too early. Okay. So once all the water's been added, I like to put a lid on the container and then shake it around for a few minutes. And this is, we can scrape down the sides and the bottom of the container with a spatula and then just continue to shake it. And basically what we're trying to do is incorporate any loose flour that there might be.
0: Just a so, silly question here, but what what size container at this point are you using? Like if you're if you've got your twelve sort of dough balls that you're preparing, are we talking a big? I mean, I'm, when you say container with flour, I'm thinking in my mind my big cheese vat type food grade huge containers, and that 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 big,
1: yeah. These don't have to be big at all because okay. at the end of the end of the day, it's it's not a large quantity, yeah, that we're working with. Okay, and when you put all the flour into the container. You'll, you'll immediately know if you need to use a bigger container or not. Yeah, okay. Because right. all you're going to be doing is adding water to it, so yeah, it's okay. not going to get any more than that. Yep, gotcha. Okay. So once the bigger is complete, it should look like a stringy, shaggy mess. <laughs> I've seen that on uh, your profile, Adrian. Yeah, yeah I'll, I usually It's pretty cool. For some reason, I only get the before shots. I always forget to take (laughs) the after.
0: It looks amazing, though. It's not what you'd expect. That's going to turn into the most amazing looking pizza at this stage, right? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. (laughs) So I'll cover the container in cling wrap and poke a few small holes in it. And some people say to use an airtight container, but personally, I don't like to trap the carbon dioxide. Yeah. Uh, inside the container, which is caused by fermentation, makes sense. So, yep. like a little escape valve, more than anything. Yeah, sure. And then I put the uh, the bigger to sleep for about sixteen to eighteen hours at eighteen degrees Celsius. And I've emptied out the bottom shelf of my wine fridge. I
0: <laughs> know you're talking.
1: Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so I can put the bigger in a container and know that there's a constant temperature of eighteen degrees all year round. Yeah, gotcha. So, what can we
0: do if we don't have a wine fridge to keep it at this lovely constant temperature?
1: Well, before I got a wine fridge, I just used a drinks cooler or an Esky. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang
0: on. Chilli bin. A chilli bin. Is that what they're called? (laughs) That's what we call them. No, no. Right, okay. (laughs) No, hang on. So for the listeners who don't know, I'm a Kiwi, Adrian's an Aussie. We have this interesting dialect difference between the two countries. And in New Zealand, we call an Esky, like a cooler box, we call it a chilli bin, which is pretty self-descriptive, right? It's a bin that's chilly. But over here in Australia they call it an esky. so yeah this whole this whole trans tansman thing is also of great amusement for my uh, Aussie work colleagues over here but okay, so if you didn't know if you're not in Australia or New Zealand an esky, it's a box that's called chili bin anyway sorry it, yeah I digress All
1: right, so I'd get my chili bin <laughs> yeah, good man there and then go. i'll get I'll get a frozen bottle of water and yep. stick it in there, yeah. And then I just got a little thermostat and actually measured what the temperature was inside. Right. Okay. So it took me quite a while to, you know, trialing different bottle sizes and quantities of water inside of those bottles to try to get to a temperature, which I was sort of aiming for. Yeah. But once you've got that water bottle, you've got it every, every time you're done, put it back in the freezer. Yeah. Right. Okay. So it it was a bit of trial and error, but apart from that, if you don't have one of those, then- The only other stable temperature in the house that I can think of is your oven. Yeah, good idea. Uh, Mm. Electric oven, not the wood oven. Um, (laughs) Now, obviously, that's with the the pilot light turned off. Yeah. And I think that'll probably give you a temperature of, you know, 13 to 18 degrees. Sure. But that's just a guess.
0: Yeah. That's a good idea, though.
1: Mm. Yeah. So after lunch on Saturday, the bigger should be ready to use. So when it's fermented correctly... The beagle should actually smell sweet oh, and a little bit like yogurt.
0: Yum, yum, yum. Mm.
1: Yeah. So, And if you put your ear to it, you can actually hear it quietly crackle. Is it talking to you? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, that's cool. That's great. Eat me, eat me. Yeah, eat me. <laughs> do it now. <laughs> so um, if, you, if you do get the smell of acid, mm-hmm. it means that you've left it too long, yeah. but it is still good to use. Sure. But next time you try it, either use a little bit less yeast or don't leave it as long to ferment, right. It's always going to be a little bit of trial and error. Yep. So from there, I'll scrape the bigger out of the container, and using some scissors, I'll oh, cut it into yeah. small pieces. Once it once it's fermented, it actually grows into one large um, mass. And to try to hydrate that all together in one hit is actually quite difficult. And that's why I cut it into smaller pieces. Right. Like smaller pieces are going to hydrate faster than one larger. Yeah, it makes sense. mass. So I place the bigger pieces into the mixer. So we need to add the final 350 grams of cold water to get the hydration up to 70%, but right. we don't want to add it all at once because the dough won't hydrate correctly if you add too much water. Okay. So I want to save about 50 to 70 grams of water and add that slowly a little bit later as the dough comes together.
0: Okay. So you mentioned cold water. Why cold water? Why not warm or tepid water?
1: you after cold. Because we want the final temperature of the dough to be room temperature okay. by the time we're finished mixing. Yep. And fr- the friction caused in the mixing process, whether it be by hand or using a mixer, sure, will slowly increase the temperature of the dough. So mm. if we use cold water, it helps to prevent the dough from overheating. So we're starting at a lower temperature. Uh,
0: I gotcha. Uh, it makes sense. Yeah, right. Okay.
1: Yeah. So I turn the mixer onto its lower setting yep. and begin the mixing. So the dry pieces of beagle will now slowly start to break up and hydrate, and the water will actually start to look milky. Right. Okay. So after a few minutes, I'll add the remaining 300 grams of flour to the 700 grams that we've already used, yep. and there's our 1,000 grams of
0: flour. Gotcha.
1: And continue to mix until the flour has been absorbed, Mm -hmm. and then we can add our 23 grams of salt, and then I'll continue mixing for two or three minutes. Okay. By this point, you should start to see the dough come together into a larger solid mass. So now we can turn up the speed of the mixer. Yeah. Now we take the remaining 50 to 70 grams of water that we put aside, and we can slowly start to add it a little bit of a time. And you'll notice that every time you add a little bit of water, the dough will break up and then reform. That's interesting.
0: Hmm.
1: We... We continue to do this, and every time you drizzle a little bit of water, wait for the dough to fall apart and come back together again before you add any more. And keep doing that until all of the water's been absorbed. So, how long
0: generally does this whole mixing process take?
1: Um, some people go by uh, time, so they'll say, you know, 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, other people say uh, it goes by room temperature, 22 to 24 degrees. But personally, I go by I go by two parameters. So I'll go by the temperature of the dough being room temperature, 22 to 24 degrees, or by the mixing bowl being clean. Right. So a correctly kneaded dough should actually pull away from the sides of the bowl cleanly. So gotcha. it shouldn't be a sticky mess. Okay. So whichever one comes first out of those two.
0: So what are you using to temperature check your dough?
1: Uh, The infrared gun.
0: Okay, so that's nice and easy. That's a real quick way of doing it.
1: Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So once the mixing is complete, I'll let the dough rest for an hour under cover. Try not to let too much air get to it. And then we're ready to boil up. So I'll portion the balls into 280 grams, put them into an airtight container and let them proof for two to three hours depending on the room temperature, if it's a hot day or not.
0: Okay, and are you using a... Uh, a proofing box for this step at all?
1: Uh, you mean like one of those temperature-controlled chambers or just?
0: No, like one of those stackable white dough boxes that you can get, those sort of commercial ones.
1: Ah, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I do. Yeah. Um, I've actually got two of those commercial trays where I can fit about 15 dough balls. Oh, right. And they've got the uh, a lid to go with it. Yep. But I've also got a couple of, Smaller rectangular food containers, which I just found at the local supermarket. Yeah, they're about the size of an A4 piece of paper. Okay, and they're about maybe five to seven centimeters high. Yep, and I find that great because you can actually put them inside of the fridge quite easily if you want to use the fridge for part of the process. Yeah, sure. So after about three to four hours, the dough balls should be ready and ready to cook. Now, if your guests still haven't arrived, you can put the dough balls into the fridge to stop the uh, fermentation from continuing or overgrowing. And slow it down, yeah. Mm. Um, and that's one of the benefits of having the smaller trays. So um, just remember, if you do put the dough balls into the fridge, take them out about half an hour beforehand to let them get back up to room temperature before using them. So finally, yeah, right. you're at the time where we're ready to eat and cook them. Make sure you're using a nice big flame inside of the oven. Yep. You want the steam caused by cooking to get caught in that strong gluten, and that's going to give you the big, beautiful crusts full of air. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Glorious. (laughs) I should add here that uh, Adrian has very graciously allowed me to pop up uh, this recipe on uh, my website, woodfightoven.cooking. That's brilliant, mate. That's uh, very grateful for that. Thank you for that.
1: Yeah, and if any of your listeners do want to reach out to me direct, can me a follow on Facebook or Instagram. Send me a DM with your uh, email address and I've actually prepared a stripped down spreadsheet that you can use, which should step you through pretty much everything which we've discussed. So feel free to reach out.
0: And do do that. And if you haven't signed up while you've been listening to this podcast, uh, head on over to Instagram right now and uh, head over to Adrian's profile at Ages Fire Kitchen. Same on Facebook as well. Uh, you tend to use Instagram a little more these days? Yeah,
1: yeah, I do. I rarely use the Facebook, but every now and again.
0: Yeah, same. Yep, it's nice and easy to use. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's great. Yep. So go ahead and do that. Reach out to Adrian, and uh, he'll send you that stripped down spreadsheet. That's that's super generous. Talk to me about your uh, favorite toppings. Toppings. Okay.
1: Um, I like the simple ones. I've got to admit. The- ah, yum. Ah, oh, same. Agree. Mar- marinara is probably my favorite at the moment. Ah, nice. So, you know, the sauce, oregano, and enough garlic to kill the vampires. <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: oh, that is such a great topping mix. It's great. Yeah.
1: And then, like, obviously, the margarita as well. with your Fior de latte and basil. Beautiful yeah. flavours.
0: And that's classic, right? That That is honestly – well, I've gone through phases, actually, you know, um, putting far too much on my pizza. Uh, the margarita, I man, that, that's where it's at for me at the moment, particularly if you can get some really nice tomatoes, uh, you know, tomato sauce. It's
1: uh, – for the base beautiful, really, yeah. really beautiful. Do you grow your own bezel? Um, I have in the past. I haven't, I didn't grow it last, oh, no, I did grow it last year. Come to think of it, it was yeah. the year before that I didn't, but right. um, I've actually toyed around with growing some Watsama tomatoes as well. So I managed to get my hands on a couple of seeds uh-huh. and I've had mixed success. Same, so, <laughs> so, some years they've been good and some years they've been pretty average but I've managed to keep the seeds going. So we'll see how this year's go. Oh, well It's getting done. close to planting time.
0: Yeah, actually it is. So when it hasn't gone so well, what has happened to the San tomatoes? Because I've done it twice now, over two seasons, and I might have actually reached out to you when this happened, but um, <laughs> my San Marzano tomatoes, they, they develop beautifully, but every single damn tomato, was rotten at the base and it must have been something wrong with the seed batch I just don't know but what what's happened to yours when it hasn't
1: uh, it, that's have been the flavor thing Really yeah yeah they just don't taste sweet at all we have had one or two years where they did taste really good Right nice so uh, I have I have heard of that happen right where they do seem to rot a little bit but um I don't know the answer to that question
0: The tomato if you chop that end off it was great but it was uh very disappointing. I mean, I, l- I looked after these things for a long time, and my six plants that I grew in pots, uh, no, I had to chuck them
1: out. Yeah. <laughs> what about other flavours you, you enjoy using? Um, one of the fancier ones which I like that surprises a lot of family and friends is my uh, mortadella pizza.
0: Mo- Motadella pizza. So that's that, that's Italian sausage meat, is that right? Like yeah. A, is that like a luncheon sausage? Yeah, yeah, sort
1: of a cured meat.
0: Okay. And that's… um. Well, my understanding that that's very Italian. It's um, from well, the traditional stuff is from Bologna in Italy. Yeah,
1: yeah, I think so. Not yeah. quite sure of the origin of it, but uh, yeah. I know it tastes good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. But uh, yeah, essentially, I make it by spreading uh, rigatoni onto oh. the base of the pizza, so it's a white pizza.
0: You should try making ricotta, by the way. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Mozzarella ricotta. Anyway,
1: another story. I'll pick you up later for those recipes.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And my spreadsheet.
1: Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So once the ricotta is down, I'll put a slice of mortadella for every slice of pizza that I'm going Ah. to be cutting up. Okay. Um, Then I'll sprinkle some crushed pistachio nuts over the top. Oh, hallelujah. And then drizzle some vino cotto over the top as well. And I find that the sweetness of the Vino really cuts through the saltiness of the cooked mottadella. So it's actually a really nice um combination.
0: That sounds lovely. Vino uh that's a cooked wine, I think, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I I think it's just reduced Is it? reduced down. And again, so it's a little bit thicker. All the
0: best food seems to come from uh your heritage land, uh central Italy. It's um I haven't actually had it, but I understand it's uh it's a strong ruby coloured wine, uh not too sweet. Uh yeah. I think the Italians enjoy it with their, with their cheeses, bless them, uh, yeah. and uh, their, um, their desserts and things. Have you had it on its own? I mean, do you drink it?
1: Never. The only time I've ever used well, <laughs> it. I got the idea from my brother who said that he tried cooked mortadella with thickened balsamic vinegar.
0: Ah, so it's got to be pretty similar. Yeah, yeah
1: so I obviously went looking for balsamic vinegar, and yeah. I could only find the runnier stuff. couldn't find the thickened one. Right, and I thought, okay, I picked up the bottle of Vinocotto and it looked thicker. And I thought, well, all right, I'll give this a go, and mm. it just worked. So,
0: oh, that that is great. That's genius. So, presumably, you've got a photo of that on your Instagram profile somewhere. Have you? Yeah, there, there'll be a few of them. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I have to go hunt those out. Oh my gosh! Uh, now, speaking about your profile, uh, just a few minutes before this interview, I, I went through your profile. Probably for the hundredth time. And I see, <laughs> I see that you've experimented with coffee-infused dough. Yeah. Uh, now, I'm a huge coffee drinker. I love my coffee. I love my red wine. Coffee sounds great. Never thought of that. That's genius.
1: Yeah, this definitely isn't one for the kids. So, <laughs> so I saw a video from Vito Jacopelli making <laughs> um, a chili-infused dough. Oh, my gosh. He made an Nutella infused dough. Oh, the kids love that. Yeah, there was even another one where he used CBD oil. Is that right? So I I saw like, and that just opened up, you know, what else can we do with this? And it just got me thinking, why not coffee? Have you
0: tried different types of coffee? Um, Are you a coffee drinker?
1: I I am. And no, I haven't used um, different types of coffee. But the first time I made it, I just used the coffee itself, and I found that the flavour of coffee, you could tell it was there, but it didn't really cut through. Right. So it wasn't as in your face as I wanted it. So the next time I made it, I actually included some unfiltered coffee grounds.
0: Ah, right.
1: And uh, that was the the winner.
0: And that did the trick,
1: yeah. Yeah, put a bit of Nutella and some cherries over the top and stop it stop yeah, it very good. seriously
0: oh that sounds great uh, other ways to flavor the dough Adrian have you thought about other other options
1: um I guess it's all about substitution like what can yeah. I replace can you add something to the flour can you change the liquid um, and then once you've made that decision you have to consider your toppings you know what's going to complement whatever you've just done so uh,
0: what about the future I mean have you got plans for the next biggest and greatest? pizza yes i
1: yes i have you'll have to what wait and see but i can't say <laughs> oh, but i can't say it is a dessert pizza oh seriously yeah so oh. i know how i'm going to do the dough but i don't know how to execute the toppings so really that's oh. uh I, I need to do a bit more research Okay, so
0: when can we expect to see that hitting your profile? No,
1: I've got no idea, to be honest. <laughs> oh, come on,
0: before pre-Christmas sounds good to me. Yeah, I'll try, I'll, okay, done. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll try to do it pre-Christmas. We'll, we'll hold you to that, absolutely. I use my um, smokers uh, a lot. I've got three of the things. Okay. Um, yeah, I love them, absolutely love them. I really enjoy experimenting with the different uh, smoked meats, not only on my pizza, but, but cooking in the wood-fired oven in general. So, you know.
1: You put the smoking... Uh, what are they called? The smoking. Oh, like the pellets and pellets things. Yeah. No, in the oven.
0: Uh, well, yes and no. So, uh, what I'm talking about here is is, is my standard load Stand smokers. That, okay. th- yeah, that I might use the weekend before and then smoke up a pork shoulder. I just love doing pulled pork. I mean, I do ribs. I, lots and lots of stuff. I've been smoking uh, meats a lot longer than I've been using my wood fired oven. Really love doing it. I really like the fusion uh, of the flavors and the fusion mm-hmm. of the cooking styles. So yep. then I'll bring this cooked smoked meat. Into my uh, wood-fired oven uh, podcast, uh, I did not long ago was beef cheeks and red wine, oh, yep. and that had a whole handful of some uh, uh, smoked pork as well. And man, the flavors that that smoked meat brings to uh, to food cooked in the wood fried oven is divine. And but I've also used some of the smoked chickens that I've done meat on the on pizzas as well, which is which is really nice. Yeah, pellets you're talking about. I've recently bought a couple of big bags of pellets, and yeah, it, it's something that. Before Christmas, I'm going to start experimenting with how I can incorporate some of this directly into the cooking inside the wood-fired oven itself as well. I think there's huge scope uh, there. Mm.
1: Yes, yeah, smoking meats isn't something I've ever um, ever played with before, but you know, obviously, it's something I'm interested in learning. So, but, yeah, maybe another episode for you. <laughs>
0: yeah, definitely on the radar that one.
1: But do you think the do you think the smoking inside of the wood oven would actually affect or seep into the bricks or anything like that?
0: I don't know. Uh, that's a that's a great question. I mean, the design of a wood-fired oven does not lend itself in its current form and its standard form to actually smoking meats at it all. It's just not designed for that purpose. In fact, you know, I mean, we get very little smoke out of our ovens. So there's going to have to be a some thought put into how we can capture the smoke and play with that smoke. You've got to get clean smoke, too, when you're yeah. smoking meats. So you don't want dirty smoke. Can be done, I understand. It's just going to take a bit of thought. In terms of it seeping into the bricks, I hope so. No, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's um, a bit like these uh, gorgeous 2,000-year-old ovens down in Naples near Pompeii there. Uh, you know, I don't know. Something about brick, something about fire and smoke. I mean, heck, you know, let the brick absorb everything it can, and and maybe it'll turn out to be a better a better oven. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh man, we're, look, we're really fortunate with YouTube these days. Books that we can buy, uh, there are so many chefs that we can follow. We're spoiled for choice. Well, you are, in Adelaide in particular, I think, with the uh, the restaurant culture down down your neck of the woods. Uh, what chefs or restaurants have influenced your cooking style? Who, who have you learned from the most?
1: The guys that I've learned from the most, or my Mount Rushmore of Neapolitan pizzas, <laughs> yep. is um, a couple of guys. So, Davide Civitello.
0: Oh, genius, yeah.
1: Yep. Um, Franco Pepe from Pepe and Grani. Yep. Gino Sorbillo. Yep. And my personal favourite, Enzo Coccia from La Notizia.
0: Oh, he's a legend, isn't yeah. he? Uh, look, oh, my gosh. In
1: fact, his La Notizia was actually the first pizzeria to be recommended by the Michelin Guide as well. So, uh, you know, that's he's, t- he's taken the next step with it.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Wow. But,
1: you know, when it comes to, you know, contemporary Neapolitan pizza, I look to a couple of guys like Vincenzo Capuano or Salvatore Lionello. So apart from the the big beautiful corner that they've got, or the the crusts, yep, mm-hmm. um, these guys tend to push the boundaries of toppings too, trying right. to get a bit more gourmet with the dining experiences. So they've got a lot of different types of uh, pizzas,
0: right? Nice.
1: And then you've got you know honourable mentions, yep. The king of <laughs> the, the king of pizza romana, Gabriele Bonci, yep, sure. Um, guys like you, know, you can't talk pizza without talking Vito. You can't. No, he's a lot
0: of fun, right? Yeah. He's a lot of fun. Although yeah. I do
1: find his earlier yes, ones a bit more informative. B- yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, <laughs> But uh, yeah, you can still learn a ton from him. And then you've obviously got the YouTube channels, like we already mentioned, Italia Squisita. I think they've put out a book, haven't they? Haven't they put out a cookbook recently? I do but if they do, I'll probably yeah. need to get it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it's an Italian, though. I think, oh, don't quote me, I'm pretty sure they... Yeah, I think I saw it advertised somewhere.
1: Anyway, okay. Yep. And the last one I'd say was would be the wood-fired oven chef, Clive. Oh, absolutely, mate. Yeah, I, I love his channel. Like, Same. I, you know, I'd hope that anyone listening to the pod this podcast would already know about him. But yeah. if you don't, please check it out. He's fantastic.
0: It, he sure is, and. I a hundred percent agree with that. I must have watched all of Clive's episodes at least five times. I enjoy pouring a glass of red wine on Saturday afternoon, sitting outside in front of my oven and actually watching Clive cook at his oven. Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, in, in my opinion, he's you know, a massive influence to a lot of home cooks around the world, especially with wood fired ovens, you know, sort of spearheading the wood oven movement, if you want to call it that. Right. Oh,
0: he absolutely is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I love how his episodes explore you know unique recipes, like a lot of them that I've seen I've never even heard of. Yeah, but I Oof. also like, and this is going to sound a bit weird, but how he promotes the romance of cooking with the oven oh. as well. He- you see, I don't I don't think that's
0: weird. I, I think when I was uh, looking into getting my oven, it was the first time I came across Clive. You know, we're researching our ovens and we find Clive on YouTube and. Uh, I agree. I I think he's a a huge promoter of this style of cooking and the romance of cooking with fire in general, I think. And the great thing about Clive is he's very happy to answer questions is as, as well you know okay. he, he, he seems like a great guy side note clive if you're listening would love to have you on this podcast
1: if <laughs> uh, yeah, if you get him i'm definitely tuning in for that
0: one yeah yeah see clive there'd be lots of listeners clive so yeah i'll be in touch we definitely have that on the cards fingers crossed let's talk about cooking in general so we've, we've covered off uh, dough we've covered off your oven we've covered off uh, pizzas uh, let, let's start talking about some some other things that you might have done have you experimented uh, much uh, with casuelas in your wood-fired oven? I mean, I have. I love to cook with them. I, you've got some pictures up on Instagram of some of the beautiful dishes you've done. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, so um, I don't actually cook a lot of other things. It's something I need to yeah. get better at, like pizza is my main focus. But yes, yes I do have a casuela dish. And the uh, times I've used it, I've usually cooked capreto, or sorry, goat. Um Preto.
0: Your Italian is actually pretty good. Too. Yeah,
1: <laughs> thank you. It's been wearing off over the past few years. But uh, lamb shoulders, like a nice yeah, low yeah. and slow the next day. Oh, gorgeous. And I even stole Clive's um, steamed mussels recipe a couple of times, so that was really good as well.
0: I'm sure he won't mind. I've stolen so many of Clive's recipes <laughs> too. <laughs> I suppose uh, goat is pretty easy for you to source in Adelaide. I, I actually tried to get some goat, last weekend uh, for another podcast episode I'm working on and the only thing the butcher could offer me was a lamb shot already chopped up into little bits and I was terribly oh, right. disappointed. Is uh, it fairly easy for you to get nice goat pieces down your way?
1: Um, yes. I've, okay. One of my close friends um, oh, and own, owns a butcher shop.
0: <laughs> You're joking. So you've got an olive grove mate and you've got a butcher mate. Yeah, oh. I'm pretty
1: lucky, I've got to admit. Yeah. yeah. Come on, you're pretty spoiled. That's, that's pretty
0: <laughs> Why should uh, – podcast listeners, uh, w- why should they consider using a quesuera, do you think?
1: I feel like it's an incredibly forgiving piece of cooking equipment. Yeah, it is. Like I've burnt food in there because the oven was too hot. Like most of the time when I'm cooking, um, I'm cooking on the way up yep. to 400 degrees. So the oven is always either yep. too hot or just past the point yep. where it should be. So because I use the lid, all of the steams and juices of the meat – uh, trapped in there and, and the meat just doesn't seem to dry out, so yeah, yeah, um, it was only a little bit charred, so yeah, very forgiving piece of equipment.
0: Yeah, do you uh bake bread often in your oven?
1: Yeah, I I do, I haven't for a while though, but um, I'll typically do sourdough, yeah, and uh, every now and again I'll do a ciabatta.
0: All right, so about half an hour before uh, we got on to record this uh, interview, I just happened to show my wife uh, the picture. On your profile of the sourdough. Now this might be going back a year or two, and it's like it's like it's a painting, like it's so ridiculously perfect. It was actually look gorgeous. And
1: I think I know the picture you're talking about,
0: and it's probably yeah. the
1: only one that looks like that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, man, it's amazing! Wow, we love sourdough, but we just haven't mastered it yet. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot. Of, and, it's a lot
1: of work. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah, you know, I've, I've toyed with sourdough. I've killed probably about five different starters. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Did you do? Did you do a a lockdown starter like the rest of the world? Yeah, I did. Yeah, the same. Yeah, (laughs) but I I found that unless you're going to be doing it every weekend, it's just not worth the hassle. Yeah. Um, I did find something online which talked about dehydrating sourdough. Yeah, yeah. So I've actually dehydrated some. Ah, that's interesting. I haven't um, brought it back to life, and that was about two or three months ago. So I'm probably due. Well, just to, out of
0: interest, what was the process of dehydrating it? Is this where you spread it very thinly and yeah. then it's like flaky? Is that what you've done?
1: Yep, absolutely. So just ah. um, on a a sheet tray, a yeah. bit of parchment paper, and then yep. like you said, spread it down nice and thin, and then stuck it in the oven with the pilot light on for a day or two. Is that and, right? And then... Yeah. Um, because I think with the pilot light on, the oven gets to about twenty five degrees. Yeah, right. Okay, so it's pretty easy to do. Yeah, it is. It's just a matter of being patient.
0: Yeah, that's surely got to be easier than feeding the thing every day. Yeah. Every, well, yeah. like
1: I said, I haven't brought it back to life yet, so <laughs> you might have killed it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we'll see how that turns out. <laughs> Does the zesty lend itself to a particular type type of bread? Yeah.
1: Well, not necessarily type, but can you do breads in there? Absolutely. Like um, the benefit of cooking bread in a wood oven is, for me, has got nothing to do with like flavours or anything like that. It's it's a quantity thing. Um, you know, you can probably do like four, five, six loaves in a wood oven, but if you're yeah. baking bread in a Dutch oven, you're going to be doing one at a time. Yeah, yeah. Like sure. personally, if I'm cooking bread in the wood oven, I'll remove all the flame and embers or I'll just use the residual heat from the oven the next day.
0: Yeah, similar process for me. Uh, I wrap a, a towel around a, a pizza peel and a wet towel, and and mop out the bottom of the floor as well to get rid of all the ash and mm-hmm. make it nice and clean. Yeah. Uh,
1: what about a favourite cooking tool? Um, not really a cooking tool, more of a dough preparation tool. It's a madia. Oh, you lucky guy. They look gorgeous. Yes. Yeah, they do. Wow. Um, for those of you who don't know what a mardi is, it's a rectangular wooden box and the sides are sort of inclined towards the base. And traditionally, it's used to hand knead dough and you can also let the dough rise in it as well.
0: Ah, right. Okay. Yes.
1: So back in the day, mardias were actually quite large and you usually have like sure. three, four, five people around it kneading the dough yep. in mass quantities to yeah. make bread for the village. So- yeah,
0: yeah, that's that's great. Cr- Why is it your favorite tool?
1: Well, my dad loves woodwork. Oh, and great. um he understands that I've got an unhealthy fascination with dough. <laughs> so he decided to make me one as a gift. So, so you've got a
0: woodworker, you've got a uh, you've got a butcher and you've got an olive grow guy.
1: Yeah, you are spoiled. Yeah. Uh, I'm nice. lucky, but yeah, so essentially there's an, a sentimental attachment yeah. to it. So that is really neat. That, yeah, that's great.
0: Cool. Uh next cooking tool for purchase. what, what do you think?
1: Uh, I don't feel like I need anything at this stage, but at some point I'd probably like to get an andine. Ah, uh, good idea. Yeah, I, d- I don't mm-hmm. think I've got any issues with, you know, airflow or ash, yep. but I do feel that it will probably improve the quality of flame in the oven when I'm cooking. And the only thing that's really stopped me from getting one so far is most of the andines I found online all seem to be quite large, mm-hmm. so I need to find a smaller one that doesn't take up too much real estate on the oven floor.
0: I'm a huge fan of my Andine. I, I think it improves the flame a lot. I think, and and I think ultimately the flexibility of the wood fired oven in, in general. Really, um, I've recently dropped a podcast episode on using my Andine in my wood fired oven, mm-hmm. and it's um, I mean you you don't you don't need one. Like it's not a compulsory tool, is it? Uh, for for successful cooking in a wood fired oven, no, but, not at all. But from a nuanced perspective, I think there are some subtle benefits, and it is you know if you can find one small enough yeah you might you might enjoy playing with that
1: if anyone out there knows where to find
0: a smaller one hit me up yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh favorite all time recipe you have cooked and you would fight oven, adrian
1: yeah uh, i think it's clear pizza
0: yeah pizza pizza why why do you think you've gravitated maybe it's your heritage why do you think you've gravitated to this uh, ultimately why is it your favorite
1: ho- hopefully it's clear like you yeah. know so far we've been talking over an hour about pizza how can how can four ingredients be so complex oh, it's amazing <clears throat> isn't it yeah. Yeah. So you never really know how it's going to turn out until you take the first dough ball out of the dough box. Sure. And at the end of the day, even bad pizza is good pizza. So yeah, that,
0: that's that's true. Except, except, except if the toppings you put on are too wet, disintegrates on the wood-fired oven floor, and then it's hard to get the thing out. It can be a <laughs> disaster. Don't don't ask me how I know. No, that. it's yeah, all right. Mm.
1: I know how you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. Yeah. That's and, right. Yeah. Like to be honest, if you're getting a lot of holes in your pizza, yeah. it's most likely a stretching technique.
0: Right. So okay.
1: um yeah. If if you find that your pizza base is paper thin before you add the topping, you're most likely gonna end up with the colours on there. So Ooh yum.
0: Okay, yeah, gotcha.
1: <laughs> uh, family traditions to continue, Adrian? Uh, I hope so. Um, but not just family. Like whenever friends come over with their kids, I like to get them involved, yeah, you know, cool. for a couple of reasons. The educational aspect. You know, you can teach them how to stretch, how to do the toppings, or, you know, if they're a little bit older, how to cook the pizzas. Yep. You know, a picky eater might even be more inclined to eat something that they've made. And, yep. you know, it's a fun experience for them as well. Yeah.
0: I'd agree with you there. We had some friends around not long ago for one of my pizza nights. Pizza was great, but, you know, not Adrian great. But uh, they, they brought their young kids along, you know, five or six-year-olds, and they they just love putting the pizzas together. And kids can be picky. Did you get smiley face pizzas? Uh, no, no, we didn't. We didn't know. I don't think we did, actually. We got a lot of stuff
1: on the pizzas. Yeah. And thus a
0: couple of them never really came out of the wood-fired oven. Yeah, they- yeah my,
1: nie- my nieces will do the eyes with the olives, oh. cheese, <laughs> the cheese for the nose, and then the mouth with pepperoni or something oh. along those lines. So. And, and does she eat the olives, though? Yeah, they do.
0: Really? Oh, that's Mm. amazing. Okay. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You obviously love your red wine too. Yep. What's your favorite and why?
1: We're spoilt for choice over here. There's so many. Yes, you are. Mm. One of the wines that I buy every year without fail is Oliver's Taranga in McLaren Vale. They've got a HJ Reserve Shiraz, which is incredible every year. So okay, that's probably my favorite at the moment. What about yourself?
0: Yeah, well, look, uh, I love the... Barossa Valley. I've been drinking red wines out of the Barossa Valley for oh, about 20 years, but I'm just showing Adrian uh, on the uh, little <laughs> video thing we got going on here. little secret here. We actually were, were discussing wine prior to the interview, and he mentioned this uh, Oliver's Tarango Vineyards, and I have never had it before. So I thought I would open this bottle now, take okay. a sip, and, and hold you to that and see what it's actually like. So this, is, uh, this isn't actually from the uh, Barossa, is it? It's from McLaren Maclaren Vale. vale. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about McLaren Vale and, and Barossa. I mean, yeah, you, you can probably drive to the Barossa Valley, you lucky thing, uh, in about an hour from your place, can you?
1: Yeah, and since they finished doing the uh, roadworks, I can get from home to the Barossa probably in about 45 minutes without a single uh, traffic light. Seriously? Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh,
0: see, I, the problem is for me, I would live there. So I'm just taking a smell of that now. Yeah, oh, I see. That's that. That's just so gorgeous. I mean, I love red wine. Is just it for me. It, yeah. This is this is probably for me. Probably more one of the more expensive bottles of wine I would have bought for a while. Uh, but okay, just stand by, listeners. Hang on a minute. <laughs> just taste <laughs> this. Hmm. <laughs> oh, holy moly. Oh, that's gorgeous, right? Mm-hmm. That it is. It's 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 smooth, but it's deep and it's rich. Okay, hold on. <laughs> sorry, sorry. I'm not going to edit this out either. By the way, Hmm. Mm. Oh, it's dusty too. Like I, I love
1: my big reds. Yeah, it, it it's definitely one of my favorites at the moment.
0: Oh yeah, that's just yeah. Well, thank you for the recommendation. Yeah. Um, that, that that is just great. Oh, geez, I just love it. McLaren Vale. Is that so? From Adelaide. Uh, describe where McLaren so is heading south. Okay, so that's heading south. Yeah. yeah. So a lot of the locals when I travel into Adelaide. A lot of the locals rave about McLaren Vale, and, and they even say, oh, the wines from McLaren, they're, they're better than the Barossa. Have you got a, you uh, got a thought on
1: that? A, a bit different. Like Barossa, yeah. you've got your big, bold reds. McLaren Vale is usually your lighter reds. Like there's oh. a, a big trend going on at the moment where they're doing, you know, you Grenache and a lot of new um, Italian and Spanish varietals getting introduced down there. Oh, right. So um So, but, uh, yeah, as far as – Shirazes go from McLaren Vale. I think that's one of the best.
0: That's one of the better ones, yeah. yeah. And and with your wine fridge, uh, you can probably get a fair few bottles of those in your fridge?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs>
0: I've got right. them going
1: back to about 2014, I think. Ooh, heavy, really? so oh, have
0: you really? I've only wow. been
1: collecting wines for a few years now, so okay. there's a, there's only a handful that I collect year in, year out, and that's one yep. of them.
0: Is that right? Oh, well, that's a great tip. Well, that's, uh, well, thank you for that. Do you like to cook with wine?
1: Um, not really, but I'll usually have a little bit of like white wine if I make a pasta sauce.
0: Is that a tasting? You don't like it or you just haven't, ha- haven't
1: experimented with it? Just haven't experimented. Yeah. More than anything. Yeah. I,
0: I love cooking with red wine, uh, with beef. Uh, yeah, it just, yeah. Blows my mind. It's great. Mm. I notice another thing that you do, um. You make your own sausage as well, and this has actually been on my wish list for years. Uh, to yeah, do this, okay. T- tell me a little bit about your history with that while I drink this red wine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so cheers, growing- by the way, cheers, yeah, Salute yeah. as <laughs> we say.
1: So, um, yeah, growing up, we just had a tradition where we would, um, as as a family, would kill and butcher a pig every winter to make the sausages and steaks and all that type of thing, and eventually, it just sort of got to the point where grandparents started to get older. There's more kids running around that it just became a bit too difficult to do. Yeah. And the tradition just sort of fell by the wayside. But uh, in the past few years, my brother and I have started doing smaller batches on our own, mainly for two reasons. You know, one, to keep the tradition alive. Yeah. That's cool. That's great. Yeah, yeah, but also to teach the kids that meat doesn't magically appear on a plate and there's (laughs) a process to it. Mm, Yeah, good. But um, these days, I'll usually get my local, local butcher down at Specialty Foods or the mate of mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're, mate, you're lucky, mate. Yeah, my God.
1: And um, he'll, he'll get like a pork shoulder, mince and de-gristle it for me. So he's done all the hard work. Yeah, nice. And so really, all we need to do is season the mints, pipe it into the casings, and then let them cure.
0: Okay. So it's not an overly complex procedure?
1: Not anymore. Like back when we used to do the whole pig, we'd spend yeah. two full days. Ah, oh, wow! Yeah, curing sure. and all that type of thing. Now we're done in about half a day. How do you go about curing the sausage? Um, it's actually a lot easier than it sounds. Yep. It's really as simple as hanging up the sausages in the shed for a few weeks.
0: Okay. Really? And yeah, yeah.
1: It's. Um, we always do it on the June long weekends because in Adelaide oh, that's yeah. essentially the coldest time of year. So sure the is. Cold- the cold temperature re- <laughs> so the cold temperature actually helps the sausages dry out slowly, which is key. Uh, yeah,
0: sure. Okay.
1: How do you know when they're ready? Um, uh, it's probably impossible to put a time period on it. It's more of a fill type of thing. So there's real no answer to it. You just have to, you want them to be firm, but not hard. Tell me how you've incorporated
0: making sausage with your cooking in the wood-fired oven.
1: Well, each time that we've done sausages in the past couple of years, I'll usually take a kilo or two of the, um, the mince and put it yeah. aside and make a special batch just for cooking. Right. Um, this is basically using the same recipe that I use for the cured sausages except less salt. Right. So just to go back to baker's percentages, I use them for making sausages as well. Ah, so right. usually with... Interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it just... Works. Yeah. It just works. Yeah, yeah. sure. Yeah. So, Except instead of using flour as your hundred percent, you're using meat as your hundred percent. Ah, right. Okay. So if I'm going to cure the sausages, I'll probably use about two point five to two point eight percent salt. Yep. And if I'm doing a batch to cook with, I want it to be a lot less than that. Yeah, so About one point five to one point eight percent. Gotcha. How do you freeze them? Um, vacuum sealed bags. Ah, yeah. So great I'll, I'll portion them up into. Maybe 50 to 100 grams in each vacuum sealed bag. Yeah, sure. And yeah, throw them in the freezer. Nice and easy.
0: Flavors and techniques uh, with regard to this that um,
1: you think you might try in the future? Um, We actually tried a new one this year. My um, brother wanted to do a garlic and white wine. Oh, it sounds so good. And that actually turned out really good, although we were a bit heavy handed on the garlic. (laughs) But <laughs> Can you no be com- too heavy? No com- uh, yeah, no complaints from me. <laughs> no,
0: no, I mean, there are no vampires in Adelaide. Yeah, not anymore. No, oh, not anymore. Failures uh, in the wood-fired oven. Man, I've had my fair share, but maybe it's a rite of passage too, though. Uh, uh, surely you've had a few failures. And I mean, you know, your Instagram profile uh, doesn't show them, but I, I bet
1: you have. Yeah, look, you know, show me a person, <laughs> show me a person who hasn't failed, and I'll show you a liar. Yeah, <laughs> like, uh, so there's true. Been, there's been way too many, like f- from burnt f- food to using dead yeast. It's wow, you know, yeah. it's it's been a journey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, th- there's been times I've gone full pizza Nazi and shut yep. the oven down because I wasn't happy with the pizzas that I was Man, serving. That's so, commitment. That, yeah.
0: that that's that's commitment. Yeah. Gordon Ramsay would be proud of you. That's yeah, that's, well, <laughs> that's good. <laughs>
1: My guests won't.
0: <laughs> no, no. You have to crank up your electric. Oh my gosh. But you <laughs> know, like
1: all, all things, um, you get better by learning from failures. So Yeah, you do. And you know, for all the home cooks who are out there who are too scared to fail when guests come over. Yeah. You know, you're not a professional cook, you're not a professional restaurant, your friends and family aren't paying customers. You know, it's okay yeah. to fail. So yeah.
0: man, that that is such good advice and uh I'll remember that. I'm a bit of a perfectionist myself, yeah, really.
1: At the end of the day, there's always Uber eats as well. So
0: yeah, oh, there is. Yeah, and um, yeah, there's a uh, Mac is just around the corner <laughs> my place. Oh dear, uh, <laughs> we are coming to the end of this interview, I guess. Uh, finally, for those just starting out with cooking in a wood fired oven. Chat a little bit about the learning curve that's involved uh, if you're just starting out with a wood-fired oven and some of those challenges, I suppose, mm-hmm. that, that everyone faces.
1: For me, how to manage heat and knowing the right temperatures to cook different foods at. You know, like we've discussed, you know, I'm usually cooking on the way up to pizza temperature almost 95% of the time. Yeah, yeah. So I, personally, I need to get better at keeping a slower growth in temperature. Yep. If that's what I... Um, trying to do to cook a roast or something before yep. we dive into the pizzas you know if you get your oven too hot immediately there's no real way to regulate yeah the temperature apart from you know pulling it in and out of the mouth constantly yeah it's
0: difficult isn't it yeah
1: you? and you know it's even more tr- uh, difficult if you've got multiple trays going if you've got a roast in one vegetables in the other and depending on the size of your oven as well can be very tricky and honestly you know i feel like that's my biggest weakness like my focus is just so much on pizzas i don't experiment enough with all the other foods. So that that is one thing I really do want to experiment more with.
0: I think one of the greatest benefits of using a wood-fired oven, for me anyway, is its versatility, I think. I mean, you've become an expert really, uh, let's be honest, with cooking pizza in your wood-fired oven and would like to experiment with other dishes more. I've experimented a lot with other dishes in my wood-fired oven, but haven't really focused in and zeroed in enough on pizza, which I think goes to show you can cook so many different types of foods uh, in the wood-fired oven. It just lends itself so well to experimenting with all sorts of different cooking styles, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally agree. There's no doubt that learning to cook successfully with fire takes time. It takes patience and uh, failure uh, along the way. Uh, Adrian, mate, it's been great to hear about uh, your personal journey with your wood-fired oven, your passion with cooking with fire. I've just learned a great deal from you uh, listening, and I'm sure the listeners have learned uh, a lot
1: as well. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. It's been fantastic and nice to put a face to the name.
0: Oh, yeah, look, it's been great. Uh, Look, I'm going to do a future podcast episode where uh, I make some pizza from your recipe and your process, and I'm looking forward to doing that already. Thanks so much for being so generous with your time for this interview. No problem at all. And uh, on behalf of those listening to the Woodfight Oven Podcast, thank you uh, very much for joining me today. Just a reminder, as we wrap up this interview, please make sure that the very next thing you do right now is head over to Instagram, if you haven't already, and follow Adrian at Ages Kitchen. And you can also check him out on his Facebook page as well. Don't forget to drop Adrian a DM, a message, and send him your email address. Adrian is very happy to send you his stripped-down spreadsheet that will help you digest everything we've just discussed over the last couple of hours or so. That's really generous, Adrian, and thank you very much for providing that to the listeners of the show.
1: No worries. Th- thanks again for having me. And once again, congratulations on the podcast. I've been a uh, oh. enthusiastic listener.
0: <laughs> oh, thank you so much, mate. I really hope uh, listeners out there have enjoyed this interview with Adrian. I know I have. Thanks for tuning in this week. I really hope you are planning on cranking up your wood-fired oven or other outdoor cooking gear this weekend. Stay safe, have fun, and go cook with fire if you've enjoyed this episode please make sure you follow the wood fired oven podcast and apple podcasts spotify or your favorite podcasting app please consider posting a review on apple podcasts as this really helps the show don't forget to check out wood fired oven dog cooking for more tips tricks and advice on cooking with fire you can also see full episode notes and links you can also post a question which i may feature on the show I'm also on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook, so head over to your favourite social platform and get in touch. Thanks again for listening. Catch you next time.